This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, I am going to talk today about um, identifying... Uh, the genetic underpinning of autism spectrum disorders, and then really want to talk about that as really the foundation for beginning to understand not only the biology of these disorders, uh, but also something about this uh, complex interplay of uh, environment and biology that you've been hearing about um, throughout much of the day today. I'm going to start by uh, just showing a video of a child with autism. Don't worry about the sound. In fact, it's very hard to hear, but not having the sound hopefully um, also makes a point. Uh, you don't need clinical training, I don't think, to be able to identify really what is the sine qua non of the diagnosis of autism, which is a fundamental impairment in reciprocal social communication. So I think you can tell that this is um, a, a young man who uh, is, is uh, certainly uh, not typically developed in that regard. Um, in a moment, he'll sit down um, and start using a picture board to communicate and um, has a very little uh, useful language, which is also uh, a hallmark of those uh, social communication deficits that that is uh, particularly um, uh, prevalent in, in, uh, in more severe uh, cases of autism. Also, at the beginning, you saw, I, I believe, that um, he uh, flapped his hands, and the second domain for the diagnosis is uh, th- those kinds of repetitive behaviors are highly restricted interests. So um, understanding the genetics of this syndrome, despite the fact that we've known for several decades that um, uh, autism uh, is, uh, does run in families, uh, has been extremely difficult. We spent much of the early part of my career spending more time arguing about why we couldn't get the same answer than we did in being able to lay a strong foundation for understanding the neurobiology of the disorder. Um, I want to talk to you about um, the strategy that my lab chose uh, to pursue, a number of other labs as well, um, which was um, uh, understanding that there was this very uh, complex set of of, uh, levels of analysis potentially to uh, try to address from molecule all the way to complex behavior, that our thought was that if there was a possibility that we could go from the complex behavior directly to the molecule, meaning to get us directly to DNA, that that could be valuable in laying sort of the foundation then to pull on that thread to be able to get to more and more complex levels of analysis. Um, And really the whole idea behind this, I I don't think I could have had a day that had a better setup for sort of laying out why this was a hypothesis, but the notion that if we could understand the detailed biology of autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders, that this could give us the kind of opportunities that you've heard about today with regard to amblyopia and, and neurodegenerative disorders, et cetera. So um, there are many reasons why we thought that this might be a reasonable strategy. Among them uh, is that in some ways we had the sense that this was really the simplest approach to try to begin to understand something as complex as autism. Not, not a trivial undertaking to try to find which individual changes among three billion bases in the human genome present in every cell um, that has a nucleus in the nucleus. Um, but um, orders of magnitude less complex in, in my view when I was starting my lab than the hundred billion neurons that make up uh, the human human central nervous system and uh, orders of magnitude still less complex uh, than trying to understand uh, the hundred trillion uh, connections. And you've heard a lot about synapses today. So um, we decided to take this approach. You could call it really a reductionist approach um, to uh, trying to, as I said, get at the simplest part of the problem and then move forward. We did that um, starting about 10 years ago uh, by focusing on something called de novo mutation. So um, when people think about genetics, they often uh, sort of think about that as synonymous with the transmission of genetic risk from one generation to the other, from grandparents to parents to children. But it's also the case that a small amount of genetic variation is introduced into the genome in each generation. 
So um, there is quite a bit of, of variation in the human genome. If you turn to your left or your right, you are 99% identical to the person sitting next to you, the level of your genome. So I hope you got a good seat. Um, I, enjoyed, <laughs> I enjoyed mine. Um, uh, um, but um, within that, so um, even though it's about 1%, that's still 30 million differences that you have between you and the person sitting next to you. Um, we were interested in de novo mutation for several reasons. So the first is that um, if a de novo, if a new mutation, which is introduced at a low rate into the genome in every generation, uh, is connected with something like a neurodevelopmental disorder, to the extent um, that it has a significant effect over time, uh, it will be eliminated from the genome by natural selection. Um, but for de novo mutation, natural selection has very little time to act. So unless the mutation is lethal in the generation in which it's present, you can have genetic variations, mutations that have very large biological effects. And still, if you can find the de novo mutation, uh, you, um, you're able then to, uh, to be able to um, use that as a starting point. And if you're interested in genetics as a way to understand neurobiology, starting with something that has many, many-fold increase in risk versus a small percentage increase in risk seemed like a smart strategy. Um, this also comported with a clinical observation for many years that many families come to clinical attention. I'm a child psychiatrist and can tell you that it was uh, observations in our clinic as well, that a substantial portion come in where there doesn't appear to be any strong family history, uh, suggesting that those families in particular might have been vulnerable to the spontaneous new mutations, de novo mutations, contributing to their disorder. And then there were two key papers in, in 2007 and 2008. Uh, I think the, the most um, uh, uh, um, um, uh, relevant one and truly a seminal paper was uh, the lead author was Jonathan Sabot, who's a professor here at UCSD, showing that de novo mutations in fine chromosomal structure were much more frequent in kids with autism if they came from a family without a family history uh, than any other group that they compared to. We then got very lucky and were able to study a, a group of kids in the Simon Simplex collection um, that was designed to try to help us promote these kinds of mutations. And, and this diagram shows really the experimental design, which is to find families that look essentially like they'd been hit by a bolt of lightning, where the, the blue represents unaffected and red affected. So to have unaffected parents, and if there were siblings, to have them be unaffected as well, um, and only be able to, to uh, have a single affected member in the family in order to be able uh, to participate in this cohort. And then um, what we were able to do then is to take a look and compare the parents to the children. Um, and anything that was present in the children that was not present in the parents was either a mistake or a de novo mutation. Um, and the second thing that we were able to do is then to compare affected children to their unaffected siblings. So a beautifully controlled experiment that allows us to ask the same question again that Jonathan and uh, uh, Sabot and Mike Wiggler asked. I, I want to give you two other uh, kind of senses about why de novo mutation can be so powerful to the extent that it contributes to disease. The first is that I've already told you that there are about 30 million differences between you and the person sitting next to you, so you can think about that as a forest of genetic variation. Um, and in fact, with de novo mutation, I love this picture because it really represents an, about one de novo mutation per generation in the human genome, so out of, um, uh, in the section of that that codes for genes. So it gives you very strong signal-to-noise properties. You can really identify where that is, and you're counting to very low numbers, and since I, like Jay, apparently mathematically challenged, counting to one is something that we've been able to do in the laboratory. Um, <laughs> 
Now, the second thing is that this is a big, a large area, this forest, and, and we have very few events. So we could also leverage um, an approach to statistical analysis that allowed us really just to ask the question, if we saw a kind of de novo mutation, a particular spot in the genome, if we looked at an unrelated child, could we see lightning striking twice? So we put those two things together, this um, good signal-to-noise ratio and this idea of recurrence of these very rare spontaneous events in order to identify genes contributing to ASD. One of the, the first findings that we published in 2011 first replicated uh, what uh, Jonathan Sabot and Mike Wiggler had done with about 10 times the uh, sample size, which was an enormous relief, I imagine, to the entire field, given that psychiatric genetics had spent many years, as I said, arguing with each other about why we could not replicate. So replication was a kind of pop-the-cork moment. Um, but this finding in particular, in addition to that, we were able to identify a new small region of the genome contributing to ASD, um, autism spectrum disorders, um, and that was on chromosome 7. Um, and we found that if you had an extra copy of the small number of genes within this chromosomal region, there are about 25 that reside there, uh, that you would have classically defined autism and look very much like the child that I showed you in the first video. Um, we also knew, though, that there was another syndrome that had previously been described that, it that was the consequence of the loss of exactly the same gene. So autism, there were uh, additional copies, and in this case there was a loss. And I'm going to show you another video um, here, we do need sound. Hello, buddy. How are you? I really watch ABC News. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What's your favorite color and what's your favorite TV show? Kids love to ask questions, but not as much as these kids. My favorite color is blue. I have met Barney the dinosaur. Yeah. Where do you live? I live in New York City. Do you have any sons or daughters? I do. Wow. I have two daughters and a son. And kids love to make friends, but not like these kids. What nationality are you? I'm Italian. How do you, buddy? So um, that is Williams syndrome. Um, and fascinating syndrome. I spend the rest of the talk here and probably several others telling you about um, how interesting that syndrome is. But for the sake of, of this talk, what I wanted to point out is that, again, you don't need any clinical training to see the profound differences in the interest in social relations, in affiliation in this group of kids versus kind of the, the example that I gave you of the first child where the core deficit is a failure of that um, uh, reciprocal social communication. So um, when you think about this, so what I, we laid out was a hypothesis that you could go from a complex behavioral phenotype, go to the genome, and then work your way back. And I think it would be reasonable to be skeptical about that's a long distance between a change in a small section of the genome going through uh, molecules, cells, circuits, behavior, and, and brain, and, and, and invoking additional things like environment and experience. But this gave us, um, I think, a, a shot in the arm about thinking that at least in some cases this was a viable approach. Because if you do the thought experience, and if we could understand what it was about these 25 genes in the genome or the subset of them that were contributing to this difference, that you're looking at a powerful rheostat of something as complex as social affiliation. Um, as genomic tools advance, we're able to move from looking at segments of the genome, this fine structure of chromosomes, to doing the same experiments, again, at much higher resolution now to the single letter of the genetic code in all the genes of the genome simultaneously. And what you're looking at here is a summary from 2015 that's giving you now a picture of all of the reliable genes that we've been able to identify that are contributing to autism spectrum disorders, again, with a substantial portion of these um, conferring many, many 
threefold increases in risk. They're individually rare in people, but in the person that they exist, they are having profound biological effects. This is Stefan Sanders on the right. He was a postdoc at the time in the lab, now a junior faculty at UCSF, a brilliant young guy who um, uh, led uh, several of the studies that, that led to this kind of summary statement that includes not only our work, but work of laboratories around the world um, that have uh, replicated both the initial observations around uh, de novo uh, um, uh, mutations as well as a specific gene shown here. So where does that leave us? Now, we've gone from uh, a, a situation where, at least for the first 15 years of my career, um, it was like wandering in the desert. I would have you know, given anything to find a single gene associated with autism spectrum disorder that I felt I, I knew reliably. And now we have a series of genes. There are 60 uh, genes and, and, um, that were represented in that picture, as well as a, um, a number of chromosomal segments. Um, so, and that reflects only a small number of the genes that we now predict are going to be found that um, uh, can contribute to autism spectrum disorders. Um, this is a version of a diagram, actually, that uh, uh, we put together with Pat Levitt before the advances uh, that I've described for you, because they have been uh, fairly recent. And at the time was aspirational, but it's turned out to be um, actually, I think, a pretty good representation of sort of where we are and, and where we're heading. So the diagram is supposed to show the same kind of progression where we have genes, and there are many of them. Uh, distributed across the genome uh, that then underlie some biology. And we hypothesized before we found the genes that they would not be randomly associated, but in fact would point us to specific biological processes, and that has turned out to be the case. One of the strongest signals that we have is um, that these mutations preferentially target genes that are involved in synaptic formation and function. There are other broad areas of biology, but it's turned out, you've heard all day about the importance of synapses, and it turns out that they are quite important for autism as well. Um, that some Somehow that's mediated uh, through the developing brain. This is a picture of the brain developing uh, in a circle from uh, embryo all the way to the adult brain. Just to remind you that while we found some biology, that that biology is being expressed across development um, uh, in the brain and that um, we don't go directly from genes to behavior. And that we know that we're now able to find genes that um, dramatically increase the risk for autism. There's some additional complexities here, and one of them that we found right off the bat is that while we were finding genes that were very reliably associated with dramatically increased risk for autism, our colleagues studying intellectual disability, epilepsy, and schizophrenia were finding some of the exact same regions of the genome. So this presents a, a, an important but, I think, um, uh, not only challenging but, um, but optimistic kind of um, uh, uh, um, concept because uh, you've heard about this notion of, um, of uh, the, the potential plasticity. And what this tells us is that even if you have a gene that it, it profoundly increases the risk for autism, that for some people you see nothing for the first 15, 18 years of life, uh, suggesting that uh, genes are not fate, uh, even ones that carry large risk, but somehow that all the things that we're talking about today could potentially be important in determining how these play out over time. And this diagram shows at the bottom there that there are a variety of things that you could um, hypothesize uh, might be involved in that epigenetics uh, involvement of the um, kind of uh, cellular molecular environment, other kind of genetic variants that have smaller effect but help dictate uh, how these large genetic risks play out, and, and potentially for some uh, individuals' luck. But it does also open up this notion of potential plasticity, um, something I also, you know, that Mark did a beautiful job of laying out the three hypotheses ab about the you know, development of neurodevelopmental disorders, the, um, the pessimistic 
one and, and the optimistic one. And I think uh, it's important to keep that in mind, particularly in autism, something where there's a large genetic complement and you see this playing out in very early life. It is also the case that despite the fact that we are not anywhere uh, near satisfied with the treatments that we're able to provide, that kids do improve with early intervention. Again, I think pointing to the fact that genes are not fate and that beginning to use this body of knowledge to understand how this genetic risk plays out over time, uh, leading either to multiple disorders or not, uh, or improving over time is something that um, is, uh, is quite important. So I think where, where we end is that um, uh, this talk, at least, but hopefully not in the field, um, is that um, on the left side of the diagram uh, that, that we now have made significant progress, uh, not only in understanding the genetic substrate, but beginning to define what the biological processes are. And, and many labs using the kinds of tools that you heard about all day today are, are now beginning to place that in a developmental context to understand the timing uh, of, uh, of the genetic risk and how that's playing out. Uh, and I think that leads to, um, uh, we hope, uh, the substrate to begin to uh, attack these problems in the way that you've been hearing all day, that we're attacking other uh, complex disorders where uh, the underlying biology has been more clear than it's been uh, for complex neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, and so I want to end by, um, as with everyone else, uh, you know, I get to stand up and give the talk and have a list of people who did all the heavy lifting and particularly want to point to Stefan Sanders for the remarkable work that he's done on gene discovery and my collaborators um, uh, really around the country um, who've made this work possible um, and uh, can't end without also thanking um, not only the funders but most importantly the families that contributed to the uh, Simon Simplex collection that we were able to study uh, so productively for the last decade or so. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.